This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. It's not every year that we get a new Edgar Wright movie, but 2021 has given us two. The documentary The Sparks Brothers from earlier in the year, and now his new horror movie has arrived just in time for Halloween. Admittedly, this episode is releasing after Halloween, but that just gives you the opportunity to follow Thomason McKenzie's lead and allow yourself to be transported back in time to a fabled past one week ago where Halloween is just around the corner. We've got a great discussion ahead for you of Last Night in Soho on this week's episode of Seeing and Believing. Miss Collins? Yes? It's Ellie. We spoke on the phone. Oh, yes. Room is on the top floor. Have a few rules. Don't take smokers. I don't smoke. No male visitors after eight o'clock. That's a problem. And no using the laundry room at night. It rattles right through to mine. I don't do laundry. I? I mean, I don't do nighttime laundry. I do do laundry. I'm very clean. Good. It's a bit old-fashioned for some, but I won't do nothing to it. If you don't like it, you can find somewhere else. It's perfect. I love it. Yes, we're here on episode 311, Seeing and Believing, and I'm really excited about this episode because we are going to be reviewing a movie that uh, I had on my most anticipated films of you know the the end of the year. That's not something that I actually shared with anyone outside of my own head, but believe me, that list existed, and I'm really glad to have Chris Williams here with me on the show. Hey, Chris, thanks for, for, for coming on and uh, talking about the movie with me. Thank you for having me on, Kevin. I'm happy to be here, and I'm always happy to talk to Edgar Wright. He's been one of my favorites for a long time. Uh, Chris is, of course, uh, he's been on the, the show before, so we're excited to have him back. He's a film critic based in Michigan, uh, Detroit, uh, actually. Is that, is that right? You're still in Detroit? That's correct. I'm in the metro Detroit area. It's very cold here. <laughs> right on. As as a Chicagoan, I can certainly uh, have solidarity with you on that. Uh, Chris a newsletter called Criticisms that he writes for on the regular. I uh, am a subscriber to that myself. It's very good. He's also co-host of the podcast We're Watching Here, and that's also really great. I suggest our, our listeners check it out. But yeah, Chris, it's, um, you know, it's it's nice to have uh, you you on the show, and um, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into the, the weeds here with the, the Edgar Wright film. Yeah, I think last time I was here, it was to discuss the Snyder Cut. So it's very nice to be talking <laughs> about something that I'm I'm excited about and um, that, that we can really dig into and that uh, did not make me feel um, really bad about myself after four hours. <laughs> uh, this was a, a much shorter watch, so 
I am looking forward to talking about it. Well, we had to make it up to you somehow. And uh, listeners, if uh, you wanted to check out that earlier episode about this, do uh, even even though uh, Chris and I, you know, had some had some issues with the film, I think we ended up with a really fun discussion about it. But for now, we are going to turn our attention to Edgar Wright's new film. Now, you know, Wright has made his name with comedies like the TV series Spaced and the Cornetto trilogy, which were dense with jokes that were all the funnier if you happened to share Wright's knowledge of the genre films he was paying homage to. With The Last Night still paying homage, referencing everything from Hitchcock's Psycho to Italian Giallo films, though he does so with more of a straight face here. Last Night in Soho tells the story of Eloise, played by Thomason McKenzie of Leave No Trace and Old Fame, an aspiring fashion designer from a small town who moves to London to pursue her dreams. Her mother warns her about how London can be an unforgiving place for a young woman on her own. And those warnings are confirmed when Eloise starts having mysterious dreams about a young woman named Sandy in the 1960s. Sandy, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, is is glamorous and beautiful and pretty much everything that Eloise dreams of being with her nostalgia in the 60s. But soon she sees Sandy's life take a turn. Is what she's seeing of Sandy's life just a dream, a glimpse of something that really happened, or a premonition of what might lie in wait for Eloise herself? So, Chris, this is obviously a little bit of a departure for right in a lot of ways we mentioned the the cornetto trilogy you know movies like Shaun of the dead Hobbes, the world's end movies that are very soaked in uh in references to these genres obviously a lot of affection is on display for those genres as well but with last night in soho right is definitely he's not just making a comedy of riffing on those tropes. He's making a genre film that really seeks to take those tropes and work with them and can do in making a straight up genre picture himself. So my question for you to get us started is, do you think that this slightly new direction for Wright works? I think for the most part it does. Um, We can get into some nitpicks later, but I think overall, I mean, this is a very successful film for him. Uh, it's definitely a new direction. The thing that I've always loved about Edgar Wright is he is he's a very visual director. He, I think a lot of comedy directors tend to focus on dialogue or just let their actors kind of bounce off each other. But Edgar Wright's always been very visual. He's very skilled with a visual gag. He's very concerned with how scenes transition into each other. Um, if you watch uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, that is a movie constantly jumping from one place to another with like the energy of a comic book and using comic book language and video game graphics to move from one scene to another. And so I was really curious how he was going to take that visual sensibility and go to a more straightforward genre. And I think with Last Night in Soho, he does that very well. I don't think he downplays his visual skills. There are sequences in this that I think are just as energetic and effective as anything he's done in his comedies. He's still a director of immense energy. Um, I, I think of some of the dream sequences where Eloise 
visits these old nightclubs of uh, England's past. And there's just an energy as these dance sequences take place. Um, there's supernatural sequences where I think he he lets his fondness for big jarring imagery take over and really come to life. And all the energy he puts into comedy is just on display for this genre. I, I think it's very much an Edgar Wright film because he's concerned with the way everything looks on the screen, the way that script is tight and really foreshadows everything that's going to happen. It's just he pulls back on the comedy. Yeah, I think you you start off in the right place talking about Wright as just such a, a visual director, so a, a director who's just really attuned to the possibilities of the cinematic medium, because I agree with you. There's just... Uh, there, there's a quality to the filmmaking here that's it's not just energetic, but it's also really economical uh, storytelling and world building. Mm -hmm. I think about that first uh, dream sequence that we see where Eloise, she finds herself in 1960s London and she enters a a nightclub and uh, she somehow finds herself both observing uh, Sandy, you know, Anya character both observing her and also being her and the way that Wright does that through simply through through camera tricks uh and through these shots of eloise descending stairs uh backed by a bank of mirrors so we get the, these this fractured image of many different eloises all descending the stairs at the same time and all of them have their gaze fixed on uh on sandy the entire time and then of course when Sandy is dancing with uh, a patron played by Matt Smith, uh, Wright is using his camera and some some really in, I'm not entirely sure how he cut it together so smoothly, but where during this dance sequence where uh, Matt is, Smith is is twirling this young woman all around, there are suddenly moments where Anya Taylor Joy is replaced by Thomas and McKenzie, and then we switch back to Anya Taylor Joy and all of serves to create this this impression in the viewer that the boundaries between Eloise and Sandy are being are being blurred and maybe even erased. And he does that completely without dialogue. There's not a scene where, you know, Eloise has to sit down and go, oh, it's what's becoming of me? Am I her? Is she me? It, it's all totally visual and in that sequence at least wordless. And it's just such a joy to watch a sequence like that and just feel like very good directorial hands. Yeah, and he even starts it at the very beginning of the film. There's there's um, hints that Eloise has some sort of spiritual ability, and it doesn't happen through a jarring, you know, scare sequence. It's nothing really overt. It's just letting us see something that only she can see, and it doesn't really explain it. We just understand why she's seen what she's seen, and that this is a part of her regular life. She's not scared of it. It just kind of lets us know more about the character and prepares us for the journey she's going to take over the next two hours. Yeah, the the way that he does that again with just with camera placement. So it's very clear that the the reflection that Eloise is seeing of her of her deceased mother, you know, in, in the mirror as she's getting ready is it's it could easily be um, in the hands of a of 
expert director. It could be uh, unclear whether she's seeing a ghost or mm -hmm. whether she, you know her mother's somewhere else in the room that we haven't seen yet. But because Wright takes care with his camera placement, it's immediately clear from from the very beginning that this this uh, image of her mother, you know, she's not literally in the room. She's not a haunting. She's something else. And and what's more, something benevolent. And I think that that is so critical to us something about Eloise herself, but also giving us a sense of the kind of supernatural stuff that we're we're dealing with here, where there is some supernatural elements, of course, to it. But it's not. This isn't going to be a haunting film where you know Eloise sees dead people. It's much more nuanced than that. And again, all of that is done in camera without any dialogue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, when you bring up that it's not really haunting, it's it's a really interesting aspect that Wright creates where it's kind of this combination of seeing supernatural images, but there's also this weird time travel where Eloise can't change anything, but she can see things that happened. And then that bleeds over into her every day. And I think it's really clever how how Wright stages all this so that we know what she's seen, when she's seen it, what's real, what's not. Um, it, and it kind of keeps you on your toes the whole movie. It gives it this eerie undercurrent. Even if I don't think it's all overly scary, it, it keeps you unsettled throughout the movie. Yeah, I, I mean, there are definitely sequences in this film that that get you, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think what I appreciate about Wright is that he doesn't feel the need to... Uh, he, he's just so confident in his storytelling that he doesn't feel the need to kind of um, follow a, a story. Okay, let's make sure we have a scare once every 10 minutes, or, or let's make sure that the scares arrive in a certain way. They, he, you know, doles them out judiciously so you never feel like the, the film is meandering. But he doesn't, he he employs a lot of creativity, I guess, in how those those come at the viewers. So you're always, like you said, a little bit unsettled by it. And you don't really know quite what is, you know, is what we're seeing on camera, whether it's real or imagined or quasi real. It's it's all kept very hazy, not hazy in an ambiguous way, but just hazy in uh, almost a dream logic way. And that just takes such such confidence behind the camera. And I think that that blurring of boundaries says a lot about, about nostalgia as well, and just how, how nostalgia uh, acts on your perception of things and also the strange parallels that nostalgia has with, with voyeurism, with, uh, with, with kind of wish fulfillment, wanting to, wanting to be another person, uh, the whitewashing of history, like all of that's kind of contained in this haziness that I'm talking about. And I think that's maybe one of the film's greatest strengths. Yeah, it's a very interesting look. I mean, this isn't the first time that Wright's dealt with nostalgia and uh, The World's End is all about someone who's living this nostalgic 20-something uh, life over and over again to hide from some very real issues. I thought this was fascinating as someone dealing with nostalgia for a time they've never lived in. Uh, Eloise is obsessed with the 60s, 
And, you know, she's she's in her 20s. She wasn't around in the 60s. Her her grandmother was. Um, but she's still obsessed with the fashion and the music and the style. And I think there's something very interesting being said about looking back at a culture, becoming obsessed with the cultural artifacts of that, but not doing the digging of understanding what was behind all that, kind of ignoring what was happening behind the creation of that culture, the things that we'd rather ignore because we want to listen to the fun pop song or, you know, model the latest fashions. We're ignoring some of the darker truths of that time. And we pick and choose what to celebrate or what to pay attention to from that time frame. Yeah, I, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about how Wright plays with the theme of of nostalgia in this film, because I think it has some some real teeth. I mean, I, I, mm-hmm. I remember back. 10, 12 years ago is when Mad Men was was you know, doing its original run and it was it was still new and everyone was discovering it for the first time. And there was kind of this miniature boom of of 50s fashion, like, you know, fedoras kind of came back. People had the, their uh, their avatars on, on social media kind of had the the mad men kind of uh, chic uh, aesthetic to to them. You could get, get little cartoons that placed you in a setting and I mean, obviously, Mad Men's a, a good show, but one thing that always made me a little bit uncomfortable about that is, though, even though Mad Men very much directly engages with the, you know, the misogyny and the 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 social issues that were rampant during that time period, it also kind of made it look very, very glamorous, and it was easy to want to be want to be Don Draper, even though you kind of know, like, he's not a good person. He just John Hamm is very handsome and well-dressed and it look it does look kind of cool and what i appreciated with last night in soho is it does acknowledge the the glamour and the 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 fun that can be had in sort of looking back at an age gone by and, and yearning to return to it in some sense but it also is a bit of a cautionary tale when it when it shows with eloise's journey that that kind of that kind of whitewashed longing for a time gone by there's you know the the past can bite back and the past does have a darkness in it that you forget at your own peril and in Eloise's case that peril is very very literalized yeah yeah I I think this is a it, it is a really interesting exploration of that I I think um it might make some missteps about that theme in the final 30 minutes or so, but Mm -hmm. I I think it's, I think it's very interesting how Eloise has the opportunity to be part of this, this scene that she's just dreamt of and obsessed over. And it's, it's actually feeding the work she's doing right now. And it kind of keeps her at her, a remove from everyone around her. She, she doesn't really fit in with the other fashion students. She, all the fashions she creates are based on this 1960s model. Um, she just feels like someone who's out of place, out of time. She doesn't feel comfortable in London until she finds this flat that reminds her of that, you know, 1960s scene. But I appreciate too that the movie doesn't do the obvious thing of the more she learns, the more 
obsessed she gets with trying to turn into this person. It goes that way for a certain bit as Eloise begins to change her appearance to look a little bit more like Sandy. But then there is a period where she realizes her responsibility and she realizes the weight and she doesn't want to be part of these fantasies. And it's wrestling with how much of her is just going to get out of this and go home and escape this haunting and how much of, of it is her obligation to figure out what happened. And there's an emotional toll that I think Wright makes us feel to that, where we begin to really feel Eloise being torn apart by these visions and the responsibility on her to kind of push further, figure out what happened, dig beyond just the comfortable things. And there's a sequence um, where she seeks refuge back at her apartment with a friend and the past intrudes at that moment. And the way that Wright stages that where she is seeing simultaneously the, the past playing out before her while things are falling apart in her real life around her is just, it's, it's one of the most intense scenes I've seen this year and really brings home just the, the toll this is taking on her. It It is a really intense scene. And I like how you brought up that this, this film does kind of, it, it is in some ways about Eloise growing a conscience to accompany her, her nostalgia. Not so much growing a conscience, but learning to pair a, a, a desire to make things right along with her desire to kind of uh, reach back into the past and, and pull some of it into the present. Um, she she learns over the course of the film that it's not just about taking the trappings of an era, uh, but also maybe trying to set some some ghosts to rest from that era mm-hmm. or, or seek justice for for victims from that era. And the way that Wright um, creates this this atmosphere of a London where it feels it doesn't feel overly atmospheric in the sense that London's kind of this haunted house and, you know, it's it's not atmospheric in a horror movie way, but it does kind of give the sense of these these cold exteriors, uh, wet concrete and, you know, lots lots of concrete just in general. And all of these these young women kind of moving around by themselves. And um, there's a telling exchange between Eloise and a mysterious older man played by Terrence Stamp who who seems to be following her around and she eventually confronts him and he asks her where her mother is and she tells him my mother's dead and he responds with most of them are mm-hmm. and that just just creating kind of the sense that okay there are there are some bad things in in the world and in London in particular, and takes it into the realm of there's something there, there's a almost a spiritual sickness where it's it's not just some bad things happen to some people, but most most mothers are dead. Most women yeah. are are pressed into service or or exploited or harmed, and at becomes kind of what Eloise is trying to do is is figuring out number one how to cope with that herself but number two how is it how can she work to uh redeem that somehow or to to make it right somehow and I thought that was a really compelling journey yeah I I think 
uh, again, I, we can get to the ending in a little bit if you want, but um, I, I think I, I'm th- I'm I'm delaying getting into the ending <laughs> because you're right that it plants completely, and it makes me very sad because up until that moment, I, I thought it was one of the best movies of the year. <laughs> um, one thing I think is key to making Eloise's journey work, though, is Thomas and Mackenzie is so good in this role. Oh, um, yes. she's she's just an actress who. Um, I, I'm sure Jojo Rabbit was the first thing I saw her in, but I, I perk up whenever she's in anything because she has this ability to play somehow both wise beyond her years, which kind of gives her this old soul mentality, but she's also can come across very innocent. And I think both those things are at play in Eloise, who is someone who is just, she's not comfortable in modern day. She wants to keep going back to this old time, but there's also this sense that she she doesn't quite know what she's asking for. She doesn't know the stories that are under this culture she loves. She's kind of innocent and naive when she comes to London. I think the line they used to describe it is she has born-again Christian vibes, um, which I thought was a very funny line, but it did strike me as you know some of my friends who, or even myself, who struck out from kind of sheltered environments into the world and didn't understand some of the complexities behind everything. Um, and, and I think she plays the role so well in just capturing how Eloise understands that this world is more complex, darker than she may have assumed, that there's an underbelly to some of the things she likes. And she has to do something with that. It's not just a okay, here it is. Is it going, are you going to run from it or what? It's, what are you going to do with this? What What do you do with this knowledge? How does this change your life and your approach? And I think she plays it so well. And it's also balanced by Anya Taylor-Joy, who can play glamorous very well, but also just captures the sadness of Sandy. And I think the two, they don't really share the screen much, but they have this chemistry together where you feel a bond between them, where Eloise begins to feel this compassion for Sandy, who doesn't even know Eloise is there. You know who Thomason McKenzie reminds me of in this movie is Mia Farrow in Rosemary's Baby. She's just got this, uh, like, there fragility to her, right? Like, it's, it's not a fragility necessarily of weakness, but just of, of vulnerability and, Mm -hmm. And like you said, innocence, I guess that, and you're right. 100% that Thomas and McKenzie is just, uh, awe inspiring in this film. I, I think it's probably one of the best, uh, female performances I've seen all year, the way that she's able to suggest that fragility. And also the fact that Eloise does kind of, they're, they're of, of mental illness in her family and McKenzie's ability to play that um with sensitivity like suggesting that there that Eloise is very very vulnerable to to that and does have um some some moments where she's wondering if maybe she, you know her her mother's mental illness is starting to manifest in herself as well how much can she trust her her own observation world all of that is just bound up in this performance and the tightrope that it must take to to walk that for, for Thomas and McKenzie is just, mm-hmm. uh, very impressive. I, I think it's a really 
great performance. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead me home. To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. Um, I mean, now that we've we've sung the praises to the rafters of this film, though, we do have to deal with that ending because it is I I, I think we're both in agreement here that it's a little bit of a of a disappointment. And it's it's interesting because it kind of for me came out of nowhere. I'm curious to get what your reaction was on it as well, because up until literally the last 10 minutes of the film, I was 100 percent on board. And then it takes a turn and then it takes another turn. There's there's almost like a couple of plot twists right after another at the climax that that really didn't work for me in the context of what this movie was trying to say about misogyny and violence. I'm kind of curious to know what you thought. Yeah, I'm right on board with you on the ending. Um, I think there, there feels like there's something clear that, you know, Wright is saying throughout this movie about exploitation, about the way particularly women have been treated and victimized um, so that men could have something to entertain them. Um, and he's drawing very clear lines about who the victims are and who our sympathies are supposed to be for. Um, and then in the last 20 minutes, he flips it to a point where I, I don't want to say it's not baked into his script because he has a very intricate script and a lot of the themes he's been playing with about things that are hidden about, you know, things hidden under the new things has been baked into the screenplay from the first page. So I feel like it's intentional that he did this, but it takes a turn where it muddies our sympathies to a point where it really confused me as to why he took that, Um, you know, as opposed to just maybe doing it for shock's sake to have kind of that twist. But it, it turns the movie into something muddy and a bit more thematically confusing than the entire first hour and a half had been. Um, and I don't know how much it ruined, like, I don't want to say it ruined the movie for me because I, I I still enjoyed this movie quite a bit, but I feel like when it gets to that, it, it goes for a twist at the expense of the themes it's been carefully building out throughout the, uh, the previous hour. Yeah. I, I was thinking about this and I don't know that it's necessarily a script problem. I mean, the, Right script. He also, uh, I think he co-wrote it with Christy Wilson Cairns, who is uh, also known for being the screenwriter for the Sam Mendes war film 1917. And I, I can see a way that the the flipping of the script, so to speak, 
in that final uh, climactic plot twist might work. I, I can think of of how it could uns in in a constructive way to to make us ask, you know, in in our pursuit for justice or in our hunger for justice, you know, how far are we willing to go and how far is too far and what you know what does resorting to violence uh do mean for a person obviously we've been seeing men indulge in their violent impulses for the entire film and it's very disturbing and so it's interesting to to in theory i guess that question being being complicated in by the ending i think maybe the larger problem is the way that the the spin that Wright puts on that material makes it feel it, it's it's difficult to even really know what he's trying to to say with this final plot twist. Mm -hmm. I know we're tap dancing around it a bit because we don't want to spoil it completely, but it's it's difficult to know what to say with it. And I think part of that is the emotional tenor of the last two or three sequences is just it just feels all wrong for uh the material which seems to be trying to complicate things and Wright seems almost to be directing in a way where he wants to put a a bow on on the themes as it were and i i just don't it, it's sad to say that it just doesn't work and like i said you know took this film from being for me one of the best films of the year in those last 10 minutes to being one that is good but has some problems yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think, and, and when the film is truly scary or eerie, there's a claustrophobia to it. There's an intensity and a focus. And I feel like the last 20 minutes get very hysterical, very overwrought. Um, he doesn't go into comedy, but it it feels very broad in a way the rest of the movie really hasn't. The performances, particularly in that, there's there's one particular performance that feels very broad and kind of skirts the edge of um, of comedy almost. It, it just was a little too over the top for me. And I understand he's playing with Giallo, which often goes very lurid. And I, I don't have as much of a background in Giallo. Um, so I don't know if that's just part of the genre he's he's exploring. But it just it kind of deflated a movie to me that had been up to that point. Very intense, very stylistic for a ending that just felt kind of bombastic. But it's not just a, the, the broadness isn't necessarily just a problem with the, the climax as well. It's it, I think you see it in some of the, the characterizations as well. You know, there's a, a part played by uh, Michael Ajao of attack the block thing, this, this love interest for Eloise. And he feels a little, a little bit underwritten. If if we could put an even finer point on it, the character that he is tasked to play is possibly the most supernaturally understanding boyfriend in cinema <laughs> <Yes>. history. <laughs> and you know, it, it's it's un, you you know why the uh, the the script has been written this way and why Wright, Wright chooses to direct him this way. But it does feel uh, in, in some ways that make it make it feel like there's you know a flaw with in conception i guess of the way that wright conceived of the resolution to all these tensions uh with you know sexual politics and misogyny and violence and just the path that he takes to resolving all of those just 
I, sorry to say, it just doesn't work, and it's it's too bad. Yeah, yeah, this could have been. I mean, th- this could have been one of the best of the year for me as well, but it, it just does leave that taste in your mouth that oh, it just didn't quite get there. Um, I'd also say there's there's a uh, performance that kind of does that for me. Um, th- th- there's a very underwritten kind of female antagonist who is very one note in the way she plays against Eloise and the movie kind of grounded for a, to a halt for me whenever she would show up. She's just the mean girl. Like if, if the boyfriend mm-hmm. is the most understanding boyfriend in the world, she is the most mean of all the mean <laughs> girls in the world. And it, it, she's it, like this movie's version of Draco Malfoy. Yeah. 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 And, and the movie kind of felt a little false whenever she was on the screen to me, um, which you know, so I was very happy whenever it was just focusing on Eloise and Sandy. Um, and I understand why that character is there, that they need they need a narrative reason for Eloise to not feel at home at the college and find an apartment. Um, but but that character just feels like a narrative tool. She's she's not a character. Yeah. And that might be a little bit unproductive with the the film's overall thematic thrust, which is this utilitarian view of other people that's exemplified by Matt Smith's uh, pimp. Like the the, mm-hmm. the way that he uses and, and interacts with Sandy is very much like seeing her solely as, as an object that he can sort of put to use in various ways. And so for the screenplay and, and rights directing to make these Secondary characters, more or less the same, the same thing is, you know, it's not a fatal flaw, but it's, it's something that, you know, one does wish kind of had been smoothed out a little bit or maybe reckoned with a little bit more. Yeah. One thing I do want to point out that, that I really liked that I thought was extremely effective though, to maybe, maybe bring another positive point back is (laughs) there, there is a technique that Wright uses when he's bringing to life kind of the trauma that Sandy faced in her life. Um, And and it it deals with these manifestations of men who've mistreated women in the past. And the way he chooses to employ those is these kind of these men with these grayed out faces. You can't really make out their features. And I thought that was a very powerful way to visualize just the way that trauma lingers, the way the, those acts have kind of haunted this this room that Eloise is in. And, and I thought that was extremely powerful and effective. And it plays out in a few chase sequences that reminded me of some of the, the better moments from World's End where people were being chased by these creatures. And that is just Wright's visual prowess just on full display there. I, I thought those were some of the most effective moments using those visions. I'd be really interested to hear uh, a perspective from, from a female critic about that, that, that device specifically, because I thought it, it seems very much like a, it, it seemed very much like a, a very feminine lens on uh, being, being a woman in a world full of, of men who are all individuals but do feel in, in a way as if they are all uh they all want certain things they all kind of uh 
have each other's back when necessary. And it's easy to kind of the the facelessness that you mentioned is kind of a way of suggesting it's not just a it, it suggests that uh, when Eloise and Sandy are kind of immersed in in this this uh, this underworld that it's not just uh, one one man that's doing something bad. It's it's there's just an entire world of these these faceless gray specters that are completely malevolent and are, you know, there's so many shots where hands are entangling the Mm -hmm. these women like they're reaching out and grabbing them or, you know, they're they're, you know, breaking through floorboards or they're, you know, just essentially reaching out in a crowd and hindering these protagonists as they just simply try to move through the world. And I think that's just that that's a very uh, it's it's a very compelling image. Uh, and getting back to what we were talking about with Wright as a visual director earlier, it's just such a wonderfully potent visual metaphor for uh, an entire theme about uh, misogyny and the the subtle and pervasive ways that it can exist in the world that, you know, I have to give props to the film, even if it doesn't quite stick the landing. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm still very glad I saw it. Well, listeners, that is our review of Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho. It is currently playing in theaters everywhere. And obviously, Chris and I had a lot to talk about with it. And we're really curious to know what your thoughts were. If you've had a chance to see this film, please uh, write in and let us know. You can tweet us at at Pod on Twitter, CBelievePod, or you can email us at believingcapc at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. But for now, Chris, we are reaching the end of our show, and this is traditionally the part of the show where each of us shares a recommendation from the world of television or film uh, for our listeners to check out. It could be, you know, an actual movie or TV show, but it can also be, you know, a book or an article that we really dug. So uh, what do you have for us this week? Sure. Um, I have been going through the book Making Movies by Sidney Lumet. Um, This is a book, this is not new. This is a book that was out in the mid-90s, I believe. And it has been a book that professors and fellow critics have told me for years you need to read making movies it's it's one of the best books about movies that has been released and i've kept putting it off and putting it off well earlier this year on um on our podcast we're watching here we did a series about movies from the 70s and we did a double feature of dog day afternoon and network which is by the way a Great double feature to do. Uh, and they're both directed by Sidney Lumet. They were both so much fun to revisit that uh, I figured it was time to break down and buy the book. And I am glad I did. Um, Sidney Lumet was, of course, one of our great workmen. He has directed numerous classics. He, um, I, I think even his last film, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, was one of the best films of that particular year. So he wrote a book that takes you through the entire process of making a movie discusses the roles of the director um he discusses working with actors like al pacino and sean connery he discusses the importance of working with a writer on the script and the things he looks at and it's just such a basic no frills look at making movies 
that explains it in a way that even people who are just kind of starting off in their their journey of liking film, uh, they can understand it. Um, but it also just sheds light on perspectives you may not have thought of, like an actor's approach. What are the things that feed into the performance an actor gives on a certain day? It might be as simple as they're in a bad mood or they're intimidated by the other person. He goes into camera breakdowns and editing. And it's just such a great back to basics look at what movies are, how we view them, and the amount of choices that go into making a movie. It just really stresses how collaborative this this whole process is and how much of a miracle it is that any movie gets made at all. So <laughs> I highly recommend it. Lumet's actually a, a great writer. Uh, it's a very engaging book. He's very open and honest about the films he's worked on, even the ones that didn't work, like The Wiz, he's very open about. Um, this is just, this is a great book on film, and I think everyone who loves film should pick it up, give it a read. Uh, you'll, it'll just really kind of give you a new perspective on it. That That is a really great recommendation, especially for those of us who are still trying to learn more about the actual craft of movie making. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't go to film school, and so you know everything I I know about movies, what little I do know, uh, so much more to, for me to learn. Uh, what what I do know is what I've gathered from number one, watching a lot of movies, reading a lot of critics, but also reading books like Making Movies, where you you really get an inside look at what you know, not just the the big stuff about you know talking about themes and and aesthetics and and just those higher level issues but also just what are the nuts and bolts of filmmaking how does mm -hmm. somebody you know what what does a director editor do what does a cinematographer do that's all stuff that uh movie lovers need to know to talk about movies and so that i, I think that's a great recommendation that's on my reading list <laughs> it's a very good book yeah i'll i'll check that out for sure uh, my recommendation is one that i was you know i was looking for a a movie from the the 1960s to to really share as kind of a tie into this week's episode. and i was i was looking through the the list of films that i i really like and i found a lot of them but a lot of them i've already recommended on past episodes so i had to turn to 19 the year 1970 which is you know it's just a year after the the 60s so we'll count it it's uh the french film le cirque rouge directed by jean-pierre melville uh that title translates as the red circle and this is uh basically uh, a crime film it's it's got the great alain delon in it as a a criminal who you know gets out of prison and you know wants to kind of leave life of crime behind and start you know playing it straight but as often happens in these kinds of movies, he gets pulled back into a life of crime and he uh, plans a heist with two other criminals and uh, they they try to pull it off. And it's a really great meat and potatoes kind of cops and robber thriller. I mean, if you like movies like Rafifi or Heat or, or Thief, um, Le Cirque Rouge is... Um, you know, slots right into that subgenre. It's a film that's really interested in almost like that that you recommended, Chris. It's a movie that's very interested 
in the particulars of craft. In this case, it's not the craft of a director, it's the craft of, of heist artists, but it's, it's very interested in the particulars. It's got this incredible heist sequence that's entirely wordless. It's uh, obviously been influenced by that great sequence in Rafifi where we just watch these thieves uh, slowly and methodically disintegrate systems, break into a vault, steal what they want, and get out without without you know tripping any alarms. And it's it's all wordless, and it's all just kind of letting us sit for minute upon minute upon minute watching these guys do what they're good at. And it's just really compelling and uh, a really great watch. If you're looking for uh, a French film from that era, that uh, won't disappoint. So uh, Melville's is my recommendation for this week. That sounds good. I, uh, I really love something that's interested in process. Um, and, and I love a good heist movie. So I will add that to my list. Yeah, speaking of of great double features, Rafifi and La Cirque Rouge are would make a dynamite just back to back movie movie afternoon of of heist movies. They're they're two of the best ever made. So awesome, definitely check that out. Well, that is our episode for this week. Uh, Chris, thanks again so much for coming on the the show to talk with me about last night in Soho. Um, is there anything, uh, any personal projects that you're working on that you kind of want to plug for our listeners that you want to suggest they check out or, or where can they find you online if they want to see more of your stuff? Sure. Sure. Well, I am online at, on Twitter at mere Christianity. Um, I, I think we're watching here. Uh, we're about to hit a really fun period. Uh, in a few weeks, we're going to start a series on Robert Altman films and, Robert Altman is a huge blind spot for me, so I'm looking in, looking forward to diving into that with MASH and then kind of moving through his filmography throughout the new year. Um, and then I would just say Criticisms. Um, that's a site that has taken a lot more focus for me in the last few months than I initially thought it would, and it's kind of become my home base for writing about movies. And I had a lot of fun in October writing about horror movies and looking back at, like, Stephen King adaptations and things like that. but in November, I have some fun stuff planned, uh, including a look at the Ghostbusters franchise as we prepare for the new one. So, um, yeah, there's going to be some fun stuff coming there. And so give it a look, subscribe. It's free and uh, we'll, I'll keep the stuff coming. Yeah, well, please do. I, I like I mentioned earlier in the episode, I am a subscriber to to your newsletter and I can personally recommend it to our listeners if they are looking for a uh, new new newsletter to add to their reading rotation. Listeners, thank you again for listening to this week's episode. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is John Lawson, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan, and I'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.